All right, Acts chapter 4 is where we are going to be. If you got one of our white or blue Bibles, like the one I have up here, it will be page 531. <clears throat> All right, let's do it. If you've never been to our church before, uh, this is a super cool building. We're grateful for it. But with the amount of kids that we got upstairs at certain points in this message, it's going to sound like there are herds of elephants upstairs, which I'm cool with, right? Because it beats the alternative. We could be a dead church with no kids, right? So the fact that we got kids, amen, hallelujah. You just got to have to be adults and power through it, okay? Deal? All right, here we go. Let's do it. Uh, like I said, we are keeping it pretty normal this morning, how we do things. Our usual pattern is to study through passages of Scripture, uh, chapters in the Bible, books of the Bible, things like that. Uh, we are studying through the book of Acts, and so we're going to continue that this morning. We're going to be in Acts chapter 4, uh, and we're going to take a look at uh, the third sermon that was ever preached uh, to the Christian church. And so that's my message title this morning, the third sermon. Um, and we're going to take a look at it from a Easter perspective, right? Just kind of from the reference point of like, this is the day he rose from the dead. Like, this is Resurrection Sunday. Now, if you didn't know, uh, I am not going to teach you anything new this morning. So if you thought you were going to come on Easter and like hear some great emotional, like new insight, like, wow, I never thought about that before. Not happening. I hate to disappoint you. Um, but what I am going to, yeah, man, you're funny. And uh, what I am going to do is hopefully uh, get you to look at something that's been there the whole time that maybe you haven't looked at. It's, it's super common in our world, in our lives, to be in a certain situation over and over and over again and look at the same thing and miss a huge piece of it. In fact, I experienced that this week. Uh, my son and I got to go on a ski trip. He memorized uh, the first book of Philippians, um, that's humble brag right there. And, uh, and so I was very grateful for that. And so I told him, if you memorize the first book of, Phil or the first chapter of the book of Philippians, uh, then we can go uh, celebrate that on a ski trip. So I took him on a ski trip and we went down, uh, we borrowed an RV and we drove down to Wyoming and we were skiing at Grand Targhee. Uh, but when we got to Grand Targhee, we got there in the dark. Right? So we didn't know what it looked like. We were just kind of like, I wonder what this is going to be. We heard there's mountains. It's going to be cool. And the sun comes up the next morning. Uh, and with the light, we start skiing. And we realize we are skiing on the mountain that is right next to Grand Teton, which is like, you, you know it if you've seen it. Like, it's one of the most impressive mountains ever. You can put it up on the screen so people know what we're talking about. Like, that mountain is incredible. And that picture actually doesn't even do it justice. It's just standing there like this huge thing. So anyway, you could take it. That was... So there's this huge mountain, right? And so we ski for a couple days. It was great. And we start driving home. And uh, we get to the bottom of the mountain. And there's a little town there. We stopped to buy souvenirs. And I'm sitting in this town. And this mountain is just like standing over the town. And I was like, this is incredible. And so we start driving home. And we get to the next town. And I look in the rearview mirror. And you can still see the mountain. And I was like, this is awesome. And so I keep, we, drive like, we drive for like an hour. And I'm still looking in the rearview mirror. And this mountain is still like huge. And we keep driving, and finally we get to the 15 freeway. Now, to most of you, that doesn't mean anything. But for me, my wife's family's from Colorado. My family's from here. So we've driven the 15 freeway like every year for the last 15 years, multiple times per year. I've been on the 15 freeway like hundreds of times. 
I never knew you could see Grand Teton from the 15 freeway. Right? I had no idea. And now, because I had just been there and I'm driving back, I'm like, you could see it from here. And I'd driven this road forever, all back and forth, all, had no idea. I just needed to know where it was and when to look. And so hopefully this morning, as we talk through uh, this message and we talk about the resurrection, this is, this is my hope. I'm just going to be like, hey, look over there. Tell me what you see. It's been there the whole time. I feel like there's people in their lives this morning who have been over this ground over and over and over, and they walked in this morning, and and they just needed to be pointed in the right direction, be like, hey, look what's over there. It's not something new. It's been there the whole time. You just didn't know where to look or when to look or what to look for. And so we're going to, that's what we're going to do this morning. Sound good? Okay, one of you is on board. That's great. So... (laughs) Uh, like I said, my message is called The Third Sermon, and, and it's from Acts chapter 4. If you didn't know, uh, Acts is kind of the beginning of the Christian church as we know it, right? Jesus comes, dies on the cross, resurrects from the dead. Everybody's like, yeah, and then the church is born about 50 days later, and that's chronicled in the book of Acts. It's like a documentary of, of the, the things that are going on as the church begins to gather, as the Jesus followers begin to gather. And Acts chapter 2 is actually the first sermon ever preached. And then Acts chapter 3 is the second sermon ever preached. And then Acts chapter 4 is like the third sermon ever preached. And because I'm the most creative pastor in all the land, I called this message the third sermon. You see how I got there? And And what's interesting is after this third sermon, we're not going to hear a a sermon preached by Peter in quite a while. Like there's these three that kind of stand alone, and then it's going to be a long time before we see Peter preach another sermon. And so there's something in this third sermon that's different than the first two. And that's what we're going to take a look at. But let's go ahead and read it first, starting in verse 1 of Acts chapter 4. Like I said, if you've got a white or a blue Bible that we gave you, it's page 531. It says, as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. Now you're like, what are we talking about here? Well, just a little context. Uh, Peter and John uh, are kind of the leader, lead disciples, lead apostles at this point. At Before this, in Acts chapter 3, they're walking into the temple. And as they walk into the temple, there's a beggar uh, who had been handicapped his whole life sitting by the entrance there to the temple courts. And he says, can I have some money? And Peter looks at him and says, I don't got any money. But what I do have, I give you in the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And the guy is healed. And he walks into the temple courts, praising God, and everybody starts to recognize him. That's this guy who sits by the corner, by the gate. What, what is he doing? He's walking? What is happening? So this big crowd starts to come, and Peter preaches what is the second sermon to the entire church in Acts chapter 3, and he's telling them, you need to believe in Jesus, and this is going on, and that's when we get to Acts chapter 4. The religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, are greatly annoyed at this. And what are they greatly annoyed at? They're greatly annoyed that they're talking about the Bible. No, they're greatly annoyed that they're trying to tell these people to be better people and repent and turn around. No, look at what it says. They're greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They're annoyed about Easter. Like, that's what they're mad about. They're mad that Jesus rose from the dead and these people won't stop talking about it. Quit talking about it. Just just talk about something else. 
Talk about King David or Genesis or debate about some other thing. Just stop talking about this resurrection, this Easter thing. Get over the Easter thing. That's what annoys them. So just so you know, uh, they arrested them. They put them in custody. Look at verse 3 until the next day. Uh, For it was already evening. And many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. And on the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in their midst, they inquired, for by what power or by what name do you do this? Okay, so here we go. You ready for it? Here's the third sermon. We're starting in verse 8. Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers of the people and elders, If we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in his name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. So we have this third sermon preached to Jewish religious leaders who, uh, in the context of kind of what they were believing, what they were teaching, what they were waiting for, uh, should have been very excited that the Messiah had finally come. We're actually going to have four points this morning, uh, and they all have third in them, not because I'm super creative, but just because it happened that way. So in order to understand this third sermon, we're going to have to go back to the third chapter. So that's my first point. The third chapter is actually the third chapter in your Bible, the third chapter of Genesis. And to kind of understand why Peter is saying what he's saying to these religious leaders, you have to go back to Genesis chapter 3. And you don't have to turn there in your Bibles. I'll kind of explain the situation for you. If you open your Bible to the very beginning, Genesis chapter 1, God creates everything on the planet, right? And, and it, in fact, we have a word for that in our culture. It's called universe, right? What is una? Una is like the prefix for a single, like unicycle is like a bicycle with one wheel, right? And so una single verse, a a thought or spoken sentence. So we have a name for all of the things that were created, the single thought or spoken sentence, right? Because God spoke everything that does exist into existence. And God creates all of this. And at the end of it, he says, it's good. It's perfect. It's just like I want it. 
And then we get to Genesis chapter 3. And mankind's like, you know what, God? I know you said to do things this way, but we have a better idea. Let's do things our own way, right? Nobody in here knows what that's like to do things they know they shouldn't do, right? You're all better than me. But so mankind is like, no, we're good. We're going to do our own thing. And it ruins everything that God made. The Bible tells us that what is called sin, which just means doing what you know you shouldn't do, starts to infect all the things that God created. And so literally nothing that God created from that moment on works like it was intended to work. Like even the physical makeup of our world and our bodies ceases to function as it was intended to function. So we have things like earthquakes where the, the earth is mad at us and tsunamis and crazy windstorms that knock down every tree for 100 miles. And, and then your body sometimes just doesn't cooperate. We have things like cancer and Alzheimer's. And the sign that all of this was broken, that nothing was working like it was intended to work any longer, was the thing called death. That was a sign. It was this constant reminder to everybody. It's broken. It's broken. It's broken. So God comes down in Genesis chapter 3, and he, he addresses the situation. And you know what he says? He says, I've given you rules, and you need to follow all the rules. Otherwise, you'll never get to heaven. You'll all go to hell. No, that's not what he says. He says, I'm sending a Savior. Way back at the beginning of the Bible. Some of you, that's a surprise to realize Genesis chapter 3, God says, I'm sending a Savior. I'm promising one that will come that will fix all of this. The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. He will fix what has been broken. And so for that point on, all of humanity was defined by these two truths. Everything's broken, and God's sending someone to fix it. Everything's broken, and we know that because death is still here, but God's sending a son. And so generation after generation after generation after generation, that was the truth. Things die, people die, things are broken, but God's sending someone. It's not over. God's sending someone. God's sending someone. God's sending someone. So you keep turning through your Bible from Genesis chapter 3, you get to Genesis chapter 12, and we find a man named Abraham, and the Bible kind of zooms in on Abraham, and God promises Abraham that the savior of the world, the one that's going to fix everything that's broken, is going to come through Abraham's family. So Abraham's family grows into a nation, and that's why we follow the nation of Israel around for the rest of your Old Testament, because the savior is coming from these people. And then we get to the New Testament, and Jesus comes on the scene, and he proclaims himself to be that promised savior. He says, I'm the one that's going to fix all of this. I'm the one that's going to fix what's been broken. I'm the one that God promised was going to come. And so when he gets to be about 30 years old, he gathers 12 disciples together and they go around all the nation of Israel and they preach this message to anyone who will listen. He's the savior. He's the one. He's going to fix it. And then what happens is after three years of this, the disciples and Jesus running around teaching everybody, preaching the kingdom of God, Jesus dies on the cross. You know what happens? All 12 of those disciples, they go, well, I guess we were wrong. All of them. This message that had been going on forever, right? Death, death, death. But God's sending someone more death, more death, more death. But God's sending someone. It's going to get better. <clears throat> God's going to send someone to fix it. And then Jesus comes. He sent the one. And then Jesus dies just like everybody else. I guess he didn't. I guess he didn't. He wasn't the one. I guess we were wrong. I guess that three years was wasted. And all 12 of those disciples scatter. 
And we, we're told that some of them go back to the jobs they were doing beforehand. Some of them leave Jerusalem. Some are just headed out of town. Some would deny they even knew Jesus. I don't know that guy. I never followed him. I don't know what you're talking about, right? And all of them scatter. And then the third day, right? So we have the third sermon. We have the third chapter. And then we get to the third day. And the third day, the tomb's empty, right? These believers go to the tomb and the stone is rolled away and there's an angel. He's not here. He's risen. Hey, what the heck is going on? What do you mean? And all of a sudden, all 12 of those disciples, those followers of Jesus who had said, oh, I guess we were wrong, are like, no, we were right. We were right. He conquered death. The sign that everything was broken, the sign that it had all gone wrong, the sign that everything no longer worked like it was intended to work, Jesus conquered death. And we're actually told that in the first sermon. If you look to the first sermon, oh, thanks, man. That was a great idea. Spent too much time yelling at the referees in the Zags game last night. <laughs> the first sermon, I'll put it up on the screen so you can just read it. Uh, the first sermon, Peter explains why this was such a big deal, starting in verse 22 of chapter 2. It says, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. It was a sign. It was a sign. It wasn't just like, oh, this is a cool trick. It was the identifying mark of the one that God had promised for thousands of years beforehand. It was like, I'm showing you exactly who I am. I'm the one who will conquer the thing that shows you that everything is broken. The sign to all of you that nothing works like it should work or intended to work, I am conquering that thing. It was not just, just like, hey, this is cool. Hey, nobody's ever done this. It was a very specific, very intentional situation that Jesus conquered death. He overcame it, and in doing so, he proved who he was and what he came to do. And that's why we follow him. Just a general like life rule of thumb, like if he didn't conquer death, don't follow him, right? This guy did, this guy did. So this brings us to the third sermon. And if you read the first and the second sermon, you will see it's all about an explanation of what happened. It's all about an explanation. Jesus rose from the dead. He conquered death. He's the one. Then we get to the third sermon, and there's something here that the religious leaders can't ignore. There's something in the third sermon that's just a little bit different than the first two sermons, and they can't do it. They just can't. They're like, we want to ignore this. We want to not listen to this, but we can't deny or ignore this one thing that isn't mentioned in the first two sermons. So what is it? What's different? about the third sermon that's not in the first two sermons. Read through it. We just read through it. Jesus of Nazareth, yeah, I heard that before. God raised him from the dead, sounds familiar. Stone that the builders rejected, okay, Old Testament quote. Got it, we've read that before, right? Salvation in no other name, not new. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, the life. We've heard this all before. Then we get to verse 13, and we see something radically different than the first two sermons. Look at what it says in verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished. 
and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. But seeing the man who is standing, who is healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. Now, this is kind of funny because it's like this giant backhanded compliment that the Bible says. The Bible's like, Peter, you're smarter than you look. And it's like, uh, thanks, I guess, right? Like, you look terrible, but yeah, like, that's what they recognize. They're like, you guys are way better speakers and way more bold than you should be for as dumb as you are, right? You're just normal people. Like, you're uneducated. You, you, this is, and so what we see here that there's nothing inherent about these men that should have produced the kind of boldness they were now living out. And the only explanation that they had been with Jesus, that after Jesus had resurrected, they had actually been with him. And then right next to them was a man who had spent 40 years of his life crippled and was now completely healed. And the healing, according to all of them, according to Peter's second sermon, was manifest because of the same power that rose Jesus from the dead. So the power of this third sermon, and the reason I think it's worth bringing up on our time now on Easter, is not just the resurrection. Yes, we celebrate the resurrection, but it can't stop there. The resurrection of Jesus leads to and produces the transformation of his followers. You see that? The first two sermons were like, hey, this is what you should know about Jesus. Hey, this should change you. This should change you. This should be different in your life. You should know this about God, and he fixed everything, and we should celebrate this. And the third sermon is he has changed us. The same people look on. The opposition looks on and says, those guys are different than they were. There's no explanation for why they're different other than the resurrection. And this guy over here hasn't walked for 40 years of his life, and now he can walk. And it says they have nothing to say in opposition because transformation has taken place. The resurrection is great. I love the idea that Jesus conquered death. It is very important that you know the sign of the empty tomb is the sign that God has sent the one that will fix everything. But... If the resurrection doesn't lead to transformation, you've missed it. The power of the resurrection is that it changes us. And it has to, it has to make that mental shift from this should change you just to this has changed us. It has to be that way. It has to be that way. Think about it this way. If the resurrection didn't change anybody, would it still be worth celebrating? I mean, it feels pretty like heretical to say like the resurrection's not worth celebrating. But if it didn't change anybody, would it still glorify God? Because here's the, here's the crazy thing. God could have just left Jesus on the planet for the next 2,000 years to tell everybody. He could have. He could have just resurrected Jesus and Jesus could have walked around and just gone city to city, be like, I'm the guy that conquered death. Here I am, believe in me, right? But he didn't. Jesus ascended and then left his followers to represent him on the earth. How? Because the resurrection had changed them. That's God's plan. Isn't that crazy? God's plan was not just to resurrect Jesus, but the resurrection would produce transformation. And that transformation would carry the gospel to the ends of the earth. 
The first two sermons could very easily be summarized by the idea, you should change. The third sermon is we see we have changed. You see the difference? Look at the text real quick. In the passage, there's people who end up happy and there's people who end up mad. Right? Like a very simplistic reading, kind of how we always do this when we, when we read the Bible, right? There's like the good team and the bad team, right? There's the good guys and the bad guys. But the dividing line is not what you would think. The, the dividing line between the good guys and the bad guys, the happy guys and the mad guys, is not that the good guys went to church and read their Bibles and prayed and the bad guys didn't. The separation is not religious activity. Both of them, the religious Jewish leaders and the followers of Jesus, both of them read their Bibles. Both of them prayed. Both of them knew the Psalms. Both of them went to the temple at the right times. It's not religious activity. That's not what separates the two. It's not emotion, right? It's not that one felt really strongly, right? That's kind of a common thing in our day. Just believe whatever you believe with all your heart and all your conviction. No, no. There are people on both sides, good guys and bad guys, who believe what they believe very strongly and with strong emotion. It's not an issue of effort. It's not that the good team tried harder than the bad team. The bad team was trying very hard to be good people. The bad team was trying very hard to follow all the rules. It's not that the good guys knew about the resurrection and the bad guys didn't know about the resurrection. We have proof that the bad the team that ended up mad and angry and on the outside looking in knew very well about the resurrection. And they said, it's apparent to us that these guys have been with Jesus, whom we crucified, which is kind of a problem because how were they with Jesus if we killed him? It's very apparent to us that this guy couldn't walk and now he can walk. We have nothing to say in opposition. So the dividing line is not these people knew about the resurrection. These people didn't. The dividing line between the two sides in the passage is not a knowledge of the resurrection. It's a response to the resurrection. They both knew about the great things God has done, but the believers let it change them. You see that? The believers didn't resist it. They didn't just get lift service to it. They said, no, no, it's going to change us. Our life is now going to be a response to the resurrection. Yes, the stone is rolled away. Yes, the tomb is empty. And now my life is on a different trajectory because of that. Not just increased religious activity, not just increased effort, not just try harder, do better, not just I don't want to go to hell, so I'll read my Bible and pray when I remember to, not just like whatever else we think of, but I, my heart is actually transformed because of the resurrection. There's going to be people all over the country this morning, maybe all over the world this morning, who are going to go to church and hear about the resurrection. And I, I do want you to understand this morning that the process of going to church and hearing about the empty tomb will do absolutely zero for you unless it changes you. Hearing about the resurrection will not help you unless you allow it to change you, unless you surrender, unless you go, yep, 
It's worth changing everything for. It's worth reorganizing my priorities for. It's worth pursuing different things for. It's worth saying no to other things for. I was on Facebook a little bit um, last night after the Zags game, just gloating in our victory. And, uh, and there was like a mixture of like Zags fans. They're like, oh my gosh, it was incredible. And then like, a lot of my Christian friends just like posting Easter stuff, right? And there's this theme. I don't want to like be too derogatory because like I get what people are trying to do, but there's like these weird sayings that Christians post around Good Friday and Easter time. And some of them are like theologically like a little shaky, right? And one of the ones that I saw multiple times was like on Good Friday, right? The disciples were scattered and the devil was laughing, right? And, and like, I don't know what the devil's doing. Like, I can't imagine he's doing a lot of laughing, right? Me and him aren't that close, so I don't know what he does a lot with his time. But if the devil were to laugh, I don't think it would have been on Good Friday. What would cause the devil to laugh if he were to laugh would be if people went to church on Resurrection Sunday and left unchanged. God went through all of this. God sent his only begotten son. Year after year after year after generation after generation, fathers telling their sons, mothers telling their daughters, grandparents telling their grandkids, everything's broken, but God is sending the one to fix it. Then God sends the one to fix it. He conquers death. You hear that message, and then nothing changes. That would be a victory for the devil. That would cause him to laugh. I got them to think that they just, they just went on this one Sunday and they heard this incredible thing and it didn't change anything. Okay, Jared, so what do you want me to change? All right, we talk about change. What is different? Well, I think the text tells us Look at verse 21. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. They're praising God for his goodness. Right? There's two groups of people in the passage. Both of them read their Bibles. Both of them pray. Both of them engages in religious activity. Both of them are giving sincere effort and emotion towards their belief. One of them is praising God for what happened, and one is resisting change. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to believe that. I'm not going to do what God... And that's what they said. They said, hey, if it's more important for you to listen to man or God, you judge. I'm not going to tell you, and I'm not going to tell you this morning. I'm not going to sit here and be like, you guys should do and fill in the blank. I'm just telling you, like the apostles told the religious leaders, you pick. Should you listen to God and what he's putting on your heart right now, or should you listen to mankind, which includes yourself? Because I know there's a ton of people who are listening to this right now who are talking themselves out of whatever God's putting on your heart. 
right? God's got some relationship that you need to sever. God's got some thing that you need to stop pursuing. God's got something you need to make time for. God's got something that you need to invest in. God's got something that he's saying, stay away from that. It's going to destroy you. And in your mind, you're listening to man and you're trying to talk yourself out of what the Holy Spirit has put on your heart right now. Don't do that. Don't do that. Instead, begin to praise God for his goodness. Here's the great thing about the grace of our God. He doesn't leave you like he found you. Okay? So if there's a conviction in your heart this morning, it's not because he hates you. It's not because he's like, really? That's all you got for me? You didn't try hard? That's not why. Right? He's like, hey, I got more for you. And that causes these people to praise God for what has happened. The presence of praise is the sign of a changed life. The presence of praise. We, we respond to the goodness of God in gratefulness and thankfulness. The Bible has a word for responding to God. It's called worship. Worship. Worship is simply a response to God. And yeah, sometimes it's singing. Sometimes it's just Grateful. So you can worship in your work. You could do your work as a response to God. You can worship with your finances. You can use your finances in a response to the grace of God. You can worship in your relationships. You can use your relationship to respond to the fact that Jesus conquered death and that has changed you. So here's my encouragement this morning. I don't know why this happened. Usually uh, the passages that we preach through aren't as like, strong, right? I don't know why. We just happen to be in a season right now at this time where these messages are really strong. Like, hey, get your act together and repent. Peter said it like six times in these first couple chapters. Repent, turn around. You're going the wrong way. You're working against God. Now, I would love to soften that and just be like, Jesus loves you. Let's all hold hands, sing kumbaya and eat ham, right? But that is not what's in the passage. The passage is strong because for whatever reason, God brought you to this church on this Easter Sunday because you need to hear a strong message. Now, whether it's right to listen to God or man, you judge. You judge. And I would, I would encourage you to do some reflecting. Yeah, you got stuff to do. You got family coming over. You got things to cook. You got a, all that stuff. You got one. We're going to do one more song. We're going to spend five or six more minutes together. Spend some time in reflection, maybe in silent prayer in your own heart. God, has the resurrection changed me? Could I be one of those people whom the outsider looks in and be like, God's done something in that heart and we have nothing to say in opposition. I pray that this room would be a people that not just says the resurrection should change you, but we would be in celebration that the resurrection has changed us. Amen? Amen. Worship team, come on up. We're going to finish with this last song. Let's go ahead and pray. Father, I thank you for uh, your word and for the encouragement that it is to us. Lord, I thank you for the things that it teaches us. And Lord, I thank you that you give us the opportunity to change that you give us the opportunity to be transformed. And Lord, there's hearts in here, I'm sure, who you are convicting right now, who you are uh, putting your finger on areas of life that need to be different. And I pray that you would do your work in those hearts, Lord. 
I pray that you would lead us in those ways everlasting that you promise. I pray that you would accomplish that everlasting, abundant life that you promise. Lord, I pray that we would be a people who celebrate the fact that you're good and you've changed us. And the resurrection was the the catalyst for all of it, Lord. So we celebrate that this morning. Accept this time of singing of your praises right now. We ask you in your mighty and precious name.